invite you to turn to your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. We are studying our way through the book of Hebrews, a series that we have called Greater Than, and what we have seen chapter after chapter, the continuing witness of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater than everything else in this world. This morning what we will see is not only is he greater, he's, he's better as well as we study in Hebrews chapter 7. Tonight at 6 o'clock we will have a time of worship where we will be gathered here again in this room. I invite you back to be a part of that service this evening. And in our study this evening we're going to look at Genesis chapter 14. And there's a figure that is referenced extensively throughout this chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, this this guy whose name is Melchizedek. And what we will do tonight is we will study in detail the story of Melchizedek and see who is this guy and how he comes into play in Scripture. And so this morning we'll make reference to him as a, as a, a character here in this, this story that the writer of Hebrews is telling us. And we'll understand his significance as it relates to Jesus particularly. But tonight if you come back, we will study in depth and in, in greater detail Melchizedek and lessons that we learn from his brief appearance in the narrative of the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 14, he's mentioned again in Psalm 110, chapter, uh, excuse me, ch- Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. Uh, and, and those are the, the extent of his references in the Old Testament scripture. All right. What I'd like to do this morning as uh, we begin is just simply to jump right in and read together because we're going to read the whole of chapter 7. We're going to study through this entire chapter this morning, and you can see even on the back of your worship guide where you follow along and keep notes, we have several points to make as we work our way through this. And so I want to jump right in, and let's just get right after this passage and our study this morning in Hebrews chapter 7. So we read in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, who, by the way, this is the, the third mention of Melchizedek now in Hebrews, and so he's, he's coming back to Melchizedek, and he's going to dig even deeper than he has already, the author of Hebrews, telling us about the significance of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham appointed a tenth of part of everything. He is first... By translation of his name, king of righteousness. The word Melchizedek literally translates to king of righteousness. And it says also, and then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. Salem is the ancient name for the city of Jerusalem. And it means the city of peace. And so in saying that he is king of Salem, he is king of peace as well. Verse 3 is, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, this doesn't mean that literally Melchizedek has no father and no mother and no genealogy, because if that were the case, then he would be literally a a, a for, for, not only a foreshadowing of Christ, but in in every way he would be what we would call a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. That's not what this is to say. This is that there is no record of his genealogy. We'll study that more tonight when we dig in Genesis chapter 14. There's no record of his genealogy, no record of his family history, because he's not one of the Jews. He's actually not a Jew, but he's a significant figure nonetheless. And so we read in verse 4, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office of a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. This man, who does not have his descent 
from their for them, rather, from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who made the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Essentially what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is descended from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah were separate from the tribe of the Levites. The tribe of Levi, the descendants of Levi, were the priestly tribe. And tenth, a, a tenth, a tithe, was given from the rest of the tribes to support that tribe so that they might focus on the priestly duty. Jesus serves as our great high priest. We've seen already in the book of Hebrews. And the point is that Jesus does not descend in, in terms of his lineage, does not descend from the tribe of Levi, but rather from the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus doesn't belong to the priestly tribe, yet he serves as the perfect high priest. And in that sense, we see the connection here with Melchizedek. Let's keep reading in verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it was witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change. You are a priest Forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We just sang about how he, he ever pleads for us with a great high priest above Whoever lives and pleads for us, well, that, that's where this is taken from, right? He intercedes for, he pleads for us. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalt, exalted above the heavens, his own sins and, and for those of the people, then for those of the people. Since he did not, rather, since he did this for once, for all, when he offered up himself, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So we see in this passage essentially this. Let me summarize all of it, and then we'll go back and we'll really dig in and study the pieces. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us here is that Jesus, who serves as our high priest, we've already studied that in Hebrews chapter 5, we saw that in Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 2, that Jesus is a high priest, he's the perfect high priest. 
And when we understand that Jesus is our priest, when we understand that Jesus is the one who makes a way for us, who, who makes the, the perfect covenant with God for us, who mediates that covenant himself as not only the priest, but also the sacrifice. When we see this, we begin to understand all this. The point is that Jesus, as our perfect high priest, does not receive his priesthood from a, a, a physical lineage, but rather from an oath that God swore. In other words, Jesus was appointed a high priest, not just because of who he was by birth, but because he was the one promised of God. He fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. He is the one that fulfills the word of God concerning the Messiah. And as we understand that Jesus, to be the fulfillment of those promises concerning the Messiah, we see that Jesus is greater than the Levitical priest. He's greater than any human priest, than any other priest, because he was a priest appointed by God. But not only is he a priest, He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and that's what's significant. So let's understand what that means for Jesus to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What was different about Melchizedek's priesthood, we see in the Old Testament, is that first of all, Melchizedek predates the Levitical priesthood. Melchizedek lived at the time of Abraham. Abraham was prior to, if you study the timeline, right, of of the Jewish ancestry, Abraham was, was the originator in many ways, we would say. He was the one that God appeared to and spoke the word of the covenant to in Genesis chapter 12. And then in Genesis chapter 14, we see that Abraham has gone to battle to rescue his nephew Lot from the Canaanite kings who had captured him. And after Abraham defeated the Canaanite kings on his way home, he went through Jerusalem, the area of Melchizedek, and he stopped there and he offered a tenth of all the spoils of his victory to Melchizedek because he recognized that this was one who was appointed by God, one chosen by God. And so in saying that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, it's saying that Jesus was chosen by God for the role that he played. He wasn't one that just fell into that because he appeared in a, certain, uh, in, in a certain genealogy because of who his ancestors were. No, he was rather a high priest because God appointed him. In fact, in every way, he really didn't, he didn't fit in the priesthood because he wasn't a Levite, but because God appointed him, because God chose him to serve as priest, he could offer sacrifice for us. And what's significant about that is that the sacrifice that he offered, of course, was himself. For us, But not only was Jesus a priest, he was a king as well. We see throughout the, the, the scriptures, the references to his majesty, the references to his divinity and his divine authority, even in this passage in Hebrews chapter 7, in the early verses, there are references to his kinghood, right? That he is king of righteousness, that he is a king of peace. And so what I want us to see is two parts to Jesus that Jesus is a better king and that Jesus is a better priest. As we understand what it means for Jesus to be greater than, in this passage we see Jesus as both king and priest. And that in every way he's better. Better than any earthly king, better than any earthly priest. Let's study, let's study first what it means for Jesus to be a better king. We see in the first, the first oh, ten verses or so, we see that Jesus is a king 
in this order of Melchizedek. And as a, a, a better king, we see, first of all, that he reigns in righteousness and peace. Now, earlier this morning in our time when we lit the Advent candle, I read from Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, I made sure to, to emphasize these words, right? Righteousness, peace, these things that are a part of what the Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah, the promised one, would be. And we see those things fulfilled perfectly in the person of Jesus. Jesus was a king of righteousness. Jesus was a king of peace. Melchizedek, of course, was an earthly king, an earthly righteous king. His name even means king of righteousness. Melchizedek was a, a king of peace. He was literally the king of Salem, the city of peace, and so he was the king of the city of peace, the king of peace. But Jesus, in a far better, in a far superior way, in, in a way that is greater than Melchizedek, Jesus is the perfect king of righteousness and the king of peace. We understand in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus who was perfect, Jesus who was this perfectly righteous king of peace, became sin for us, offered himself for us so that we might be made whole, that we might be redeemed in the eyes of God. He's, he's a better king, a king who is righteous. Not only is he a, not only is he a king who reigns in righteousness, and peace. Not only are those the hallmarks of his rule and his reign and his authority in our lives, we see secondly that he is deserving of our tithes. Jesus reigns in righteousness and peace. And secondly, and importantly, Jesus deserves our tithes. Now here is what's really important and significant for us to understand about this. This deals not only with physically the act of tithing, but it it deals also with the idea that a, a tithe is intended to be a reminder to us. And so we practice regularly the, the discipline of tithing. One of the things that we talk about, one of the things that Jesus himself talked about regularly was giving. And Jesus is the one who teaches us that we give not because God needs our money, but we give because we want God's blessing. We give because giving is a reminder to us that God deserves to be first place in our hearts. And so Jesus says it like this. Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The idea is that where Wherever our, our treasure is, those, are those things that we treasure, those things that we cherish, those things that we value, that's what has our heart. And so tithing is not just about giving because we, God's commanded us to give and the Lord needs our money. Now, we'll come back in a minute because it is also a practice that we do because we're commanded to do it. But first and foremost, it's important for us to see that tithing is about giving God first place in our hearts. You know, in, in the world today, particularly with, with my generation and, and younger generations, one of the things that, that is lost on us so much of the time is the necessity, even the biblical, the biblical instruction on tithing. One of the things that concerns me about my generation and younger generations is that we've lost this discipline of tithing because along the way, we've just decided that it's not necessary. And yet, 
Not only is it necessary, but it's biblically mandated for believers to give and practice the tithe. In our generation, in my, in my generation, the younger generations, what we're fond of are crowdfunding types of ways to give, right? And so we want to give to somebody's Kickstarter program. We, we want to do some kind of crowdsourced funding, right? We see a need. We want to meet a need. And, and, and tithing in many ways is, is not sexy enough for us, right? And tithing in many ways for us is, is, is too boring because you just give. You just give. And yet, that giving, that disciplined giving is intended by God to be a reminder to us, literally an act of worship itself that reminds us that God deserves first in everything. That's why we're called to make the tithe of the first fruits, which means that it comes out first. When I was a child, I remember that my parents were so regimented and disciplined about this with, with us as, as boys, right, with anything, that before you gave to anything else, you gave your tithe. It came out first because God deserved first. God deserved best. Why do we give a tenth? Well, because the tithe itself, literally the word just means a tenth. So Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek, and the scriptures call for us to tithe, to give a tenth to the Lord. And the reason we do that is not because God is poor or because God is broke and he needs our money. The reason that you do that is not just so that my family and our other staff families get fed, although we appreciate it when you do give, because through your gifts, our families get fed, right? But more than that, it has so much more to do with an issue of our heart and a re regular, disciplined reminder to us that God deserves first place in everything. And if he isn't first place in your wallet, then honestly, he's not first place in anything in your life because it's either God of all or not God at all, right? He's Lord of everything or he's not Lord at all in our lives. And that is the point. Jesus is a better king. He's a better king than Melchizedek. He's a better king than any earthly king. And because of that, he deserves our tithe. He deserves for us to give our obedience and, and literally our allegiance to to him, And so when we, when we give that tithe, when you write that check, when you log online, when you place that money in the offering plate, you are physically devoting yourself to Jesus. Jesus, you are first. Jesus, you deserve first. And there are a lot of times when, honestly, it, it's hard to do because we think, man, if I give this, there's not going to be enough for all of these other things. But here's what I know to be true in my own life and my own experience. And I, and I guarantee that it would be true in yours as well because I've I've heard countless stories, countless testimonies along the line. First of all, I would say that it's a discipline, right? It, you don't do it because it's easy. You do it because it's a discipline that we're called to, and we, and we do it out of discipline. And so there are times when we give knowing that, that things are going to be tight, and yet, in every way, God will provide. God will bless. And even in Malachi chapter 3, God literally says, test me on this. Put me to the test. You don't believe me? You don't believe this works? Try me, God says. But also, I, I understand this to be true, right? In a day and an age when we pay hundreds of dollars for cell phone bills and cable bills and internet access and, and, and we have all the money that we need to eat out and do all the things that we want to do, tithing is something that there's always enough to do the things that we, that we believe in and the things that we want to do. So giving that tithe, giving in, in that disciplined way, I, I believe that, honestly, we, we can order our lives in such a way that, that there would be enough. 
And, and I'm not saying it's always easy, and I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that it won't require great sacrifice, and yet even in that, when it requires a sacrifice, even when it's not easy, then that's when we understand more fully the purpose of the tithe. And so as a better king, Jesus reigns in righteousness and peace. As a better king, he's deserving of our tithe, of a tenth. And let me say one other thing before we get off that subject and move on to the third point. I want to say this, that as it comes to the discipline and the practice of tithing, I'm not saying this and preaching this to you because our church is unfaithful or undisciplined in this. In fact, our church is incredibly faithful and incredibly disciplined in this. But if, if, if I can highlight and target anyone in the room, especially this morning, I want to go after our younger generations with this because I honestly believe that it's, it's, it's my generation and the generations who are younger than me that we don't understand this. We don't, we don't see it as the discipline that the Scripture instructs us that it should be. And so we, we give. It's not that we don't give, but we don't do it in a way that it's disciplined the way that Scripture calls for us to. It's not the first fruits we give of what's left over. And secondly, we don't always give a tithe because maybe we don't understand biblically the need. Here the Scriptures clearly call for us to do that in the same way that Melchizedek does. It's, it's pointing us to that model, that type that Jesus represents for us. Third, as a better king, we see this, that Jesus replaces the law. He replaces the law in this passage. Look at verse, look at verse 12. It says, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. In other words, when Jesus came, because Jesus is, is different, there's a change in the law that took place with Jesus. Jesus replaces the law. He's better than the system of the law. In verse 19, we see, and really you could pick it up in the last part of verse 18, that the former things were set aside because of their weakness and their uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. The law couldn't fix us. The law couldn't make us right and perfect before God. The law couldn't give us a right standing before a righteous and a perfect king. And yet, the king himself gave himself for us because he's a better king and he replaces the law. We see in Galatians chapter 3. I want to read Galatians 3 verses 10 through 14 where Paul instructs us that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Did you hear that? If we're trusting in the law, then we are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus became the curse for us. Jesus replaces the law with something better, with himself. So Jesus is a better king, and as a better king, he reigns in righteousness and peace. He's deserving of our tithe, and he replaces the law. And then secondly, we see in this passage, in the, in the order of Melchizedek, again, that Jesus was a king and a priest. So not only was Jesus a better king, but he was a better priest. And as a better priest, Jesus first of all, supersedes 
every human priest, especially the Levitical priesthood that it points to here, right? The, the priesthood of Aaron, as it's referred to here, we see in verse 7 that it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Jesus here is what is superior, right? He's better. He's greater than the human priests, the, the, the priesthood of Aaron in verse 15 and 16. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who's become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So Jesus is a priest as evidenced by the fact that he was chosen of God, as evidenced by the fact that he lived a perfect, and it describes it here as an indestructible life. Jesus is a greater priest than any earthly priest, and, and as such, he, he supersedes the human priesthood, which means that his priesthood is greater. His priesthood is better than any human priest because what Jesus did for us, he did once and for all, and we'll see that as we continue studying in the next few weeks in Hebrews 8 and 9, that Jesus gave himself for us once and for all, the perfect sacrifice. And so he, he supersedes every human priest. But not only that, secondly, we see that as a better priest, Jesus introduces a new hope. Verse 19, we read this. It says, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, we saw last week in the passage that we studied that we can draw near to God. We saw when we studied in Hebrews chapter 4 that we can draw near to God. I told you then that the central instruction, the central teaching of the entire book of Hebrews is that we would hold to, hold fast to the confession of faith and that we would draw near to God. And here it is again. How is it that we draw near to God? It's through Jesus. Because Jesus introduces a new hope a better hope for us. This morning we lit the candle of hope, right? The candle of hope is a reminder to us that in Jesus we have a hope and a future. In Jesus we have a hope in the things that God has promised to us. In Jesus we can trust that our future is secure because he introduces a new hope, a, a better hope for us, better than the hope that we knew. See, the hope that we knew in the law, the hope that we knew through the Levitical priesthood was a hope that had to be renewed year in and year out, and we were constantly waiting, constantly anticipating something that was yet to come, and yet now that Jesus has come, now as a, a better, a greater high priest, he has done a work for us once for all. He's introduced a new hope. A hope that continues forever. A hope that reigns forever to come. Third, we see this in this passage. As a better priest, Jesus guarantees a better covenant. Not only does he introduce a new hope, but he guarantees a better covenant. The old covenant, the covenant that was established with Abraham, the, the Old Testament covenant, was a, a covenant that, that was completely dependent upon and completely re relied upon the, the work of God, and yet, because that covenant looked forward in anticipation toward a future event, an event that had yet to happen, they believed in, they hoped for future things. Now, 
as believers in Jesus who has already come, who has offered himself. We trust and we hope not in the promise of future things to come, but we look backward and we see our hope and our, and our, and our, our very faith secured in what Jesus has already done. It's a better covenant. And we also have seen and studied already in Hebrews that it's a covenant that was instituted by Jesus' blood. A few weeks ago when we received the Lord's Supper together, we highlighted that fact that Jesus says this blood is, is the blood of a new covenant, right? That, that rather this drink, which Jesus referred to as his blood, this, this cup is a, is a cup of my blood, a new and a better covenant that Jesus gives us. And he guarantees it for us. Verse 22 tells us he's the guarantor of a better covenant. In other words, the covenant doesn't rest upon our works. It doesn't rest upon the, the yearly sacrifices for our sins. Rather, this covenant rests once and for all in the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus guarantees our hope because our hope is in him. Third, we see this, fourth, excuse me, that Jesus, as a better priest, continues forever. Look at verse 24. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever no one is going to come and replace jesus there is no greater priest to come there is no one else who could somehow supersede jesus in the way that jesus superseded the old testament system there is no one to replace him because what jesus has done is perfect and it's permanent it's perfect and it's permanent right what he did for us lasts forever. It continues forever. And that's significant for us. That's significant because if, if this promise didn't continue forever, then we would be in trouble because if this, if this promise, if this hope did not continue forever, then somehow we could walk away from it, then somehow we could, we could lose it, somehow we could, we could fall out of grace with God, and yet we understand because our hope rests in Jesus, we will never lose our hope. Our hope is secured. It is guaranteed, not because of you, not because of me, not because of the things that we have done. We even saw that in Hebrews chapter 6. But rather, it rests permanently, perfectly in the person of Jesus. There's a sermon there in that, by the way. Three points, permanent, perfect, and person, right? Next, we see this, the fifth point. That is a better priest Jesus saves to the uttermost. Look at verse 25. It just says it plainly, right? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, which means completely, perfectly. There's nothing left undone with Jesus. He is able to save us perfectly. How do we know this? How can we be certain of this? Look at verse 26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus gave the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice that continues forever. How do we know this? Because Jesus himself is the one that guarantees it because Jesus himself was the sacrifice. And so he saves us to the uttermost, which is just another way of saying 
that what Jesus did, he did perfectly. He did it well. And then finally, we see this. As a better priest, Jesus intercedes for us. Verse 25, he always lives to make intercession for them. Who's the them? That's us. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. As a perfect priest, he intercedes for us. He he acts on our behalf. What does it mean for Jesus to intercede for you and me? It means that Jesus himself is the one. Jesus himself is the one who makes good this promise of God so that when God looks at you and I broken and, and marred by sin as we are, what he sees is the blood of Jesus. And that blood of Jesus speaks a better word for us. That blood of Jesus, Hebrews chapter one tells us, speaks a better word. That blood of Jesus reminds us, but also secures things with God that that he was greater than anything else in this world. In Romans chapter eight, verse 34, we read that Jesus indeed is interceding for us. At the throne of God, Jesus intercedes for us Jesus himself makes a way. Oftentimes we describe this using what's called the bridge illustration, right? You've seen this before. The bridge illustration depicts us on one side of a cliff, and then there's this great chasm, and on the other side is God. And there's no way that we can cross this chasm until we see that the cross of Christ fits perfectly it, it spans the gap. It bridges the distance between us and God and becomes the, the means through which we can have a fellowship. We can have a relationship with God. Jesus himself intercedes for us. He acts on our behalf, making a way for us. So Jesus is a better king. And as a better king, he reigns in righteousness. He deserves first place. He deserves our tithe, right? He as a better king, he replaces the law. He, he's better. He's perfect. He continues forever. Jesus is a better priest for us, superseding every human priest, introducing a, no, a new hope, guaranteeing a better covenant, continuing forever, saving to the uttermost, and finally, and importantly, interceding for us. All of this Jesus does because he was perfect. And as a perfect, spotless one, he gave himself us. When we hear this, when we read this, the only right response to this is to give thanks to God, is to give our allegiance to him. The only appropriate response to this is to humble our hearts in faith, to bow our knees before him and say, Jesus, you are worthy and deserving of all, all that I am, all that I have, all that I could hope to be. Jesus, you are deserving of all. You are a greater king. You are a greater priest. Jesus, I give you everything, all my allegiance, all my hope, all my heart, all my, all my trust, all my faith, all I am, I devote to you, Jesus. In a moment, we're going to have a time of response, and I sincerely hope that in our response this morning, in our prayers, in our songs, in the way that we respond, that this would be a genuine moment of worship for us, that we respond in the only right way that we can respond to what Jesus has done for us, and that is to say, God, you gave everything for me. Here is all that I am for you. Maybe today. There's never been that moment in your life when you've truly trusted everything that you are to him by faith. And I pray that you would come 
you would take myself, take Brad by the hand and just say, I'm ready to give everything to Jesus today. And let us walk you through a simple prayer of faith where you trust in him, where you surrender fully to him. Maybe you've surrendered your heart to God, trusting in him for your salvation, but you've not surrendered everything else to him. You've surrendered your heart to him. You believe that he's enough to save you, but you don't live as though he's enough to sustain you day by day. And today, what God wants you to hear is that he wants everything, all of it, and he's deserving and worthy of everything that you have. And today, you need to surrender it all to him. These altars will be open in our time of response, and I pray that if God is moving in your heart in that way, that you would come and you would surrender everything to him this morning. He's a better king, and so he's deserving of our allegiance. He's a better priest, and he's deserving of our worship. Today, may we surrender all to him. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you that you were the perfect king and the perfect priest, but not only that, that as a perfect king and a perfect priest, you gave everything for us. You surrendered your life. You gave the sacrifice. So now, Lord, in response to you and what you've done for us, we want to offer not only our lives, but also our worship to you, God. We confess and we cry out to you saying, God, you are worthy, worthy of all that we have, worthy of all we can give. Come now, Jesus, be our hope, be our peace, be our righteousness as we trust completely in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we stand.